Uh, you can open up to First Timothy chapter six today. We're going to look at First Timothy chapter six verses eleven through sixteen. Uh, and everybody on the uh, as Tim goes down, you could tell Tim thank you for coming and spending your lunch break with us, uh, and then running back to work. But uh, thank you for your heart in, in facilitating work, even if it's blazing fast speed. Um, this morning, as we continue in First Timothy chapter six. Uh, we're picking up verse 11, and uh, like I said, we're walking through verse 16. Last week in verses 2 through 10, uh, we saw Paul addressing the issue of some who had abandoned a right faith, and yeah, right faith in Christ, by chasing after their own appetites. So competing desires, things that superseded their affection and their love for Jesus, um, and, and also... Uh, there's an avenue in which Paul's confronted those who use their faith in Christ in order to like achieve something else. So, so that the faith in Christ is somehow, or godliness is a means of uh, obtaining personal gain rather than Jesus being the object and the focus. And we talked a little bit last week about how subtle of a shift that can be. Uh, it's really easy for us to just very subtly... Um, all of a sudden, Jesus is the vehicle by which I get what I want, rather than Jesus is the vehicle and he's the destination. Uh, and, and there's, a, there's a, a subtle shift in there, and Paul is warning Timothy in First Timothy not to do that, but then also to urge and to teach others to stay rooted in this right faith in Jesus. And then the overarching theme then of First Timothy, right, is, is having this right faith in Jesus that plays out and radiates in right ways in the midst of a broken world. Um, and this morning, as we, as we step into verses 11 through 16, we get a little bit more on the, on the, the positive side of, uh, we finished last week in verse 11 just touching briefly on Paul's encouragement to Timothy to run away and what to pursue. And so this morning we're going to look at uh, what is it look like or how are we to pursue Jesus and radiate the truth of the gospel in a broken world. First Timothy chapter 6 verses 11 through 16. Says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach till the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And it's kind of this is a cool passage. Austin Paul like given a charge, and then he breaks into like this this chorus of of praise. Um, and this is following again, following immediately after a caution of pursuing worldly treasure, power, placing our desires in something, in the pinnacle of our hope, in something other than Jesus, which ultimately, at the end of verse 10, 
And he talks about how it leads ultimately to catastrophe and destruction. It doesn't produce the, our appetite to promise one thing and deliver something else. Right? And so now he's shifting gears. And we're looking at the practical, what do we do? And I want to give a quick caution because on the front end, when I say this is the how to how does how does Paul give us encouragement? How to keep from shipwrecking our faith? Um, I might word that in a way that it sounds like, oh, you just follow these three easy steps, like the easy button, and hey, life in Jesus is complete. Um, or that it would just be like these three functional steps will improve your life. These three simple steps will like like right. We're we're not talking about that, but it sounds very simple. But um, what we're going to do is actually turn this passage uh, backwards a little. Bit. Start in the second half and then work our way. Back up. And so we're going to take verses 13 through 16 first, and then we're going to come back up to verses 11 and 12. And because of the heart of this, so he gives an encouragement in, in verse 11 to flee, but in verse 13 he said, I charge you. I'm giving, again, the word charge for Paul, we, we've seen it in 1 Timothy before. The idea of it is one who's giving military orders, like so the orders of a superior officer to a subordinate soldier. Or like, So I'm being like, Paul, uh, Timothy, these are like your marching orders. These are the things that you are to do. This is the charge. This is the command. This is what I'm telling you. And what's incredible about this is it's not based on Paul's authority because he says, I charge you not based off of who I am, but he says, I charge you in the presence of, of God. Like so so God is the one who has the authority and I am like Paul is just the conduit to Timothy saying this is what. So like so imagine this Paul is saying in the presence of God this is what I'm telling you. Now if this was contrary to what God is saying like you'd be like Paul the danger red lights, right? Danger danger Will Robinson don't say that if it's not what God says. But he said, I, I'm charging you in the presence of God in the presence of the Lord. And I want you to just hold your finger there. In the presence of God. And then you drop down to verse 14. This is the charge, and then we're going to fill this in with, with what he says about God in just a moment. The charge in the presence of God is to keep the commandment unsigned and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right? So I'm charging you, Timothy, this is the command. Keep teaching. Keep the word of God unstained. Keep it pure. Follow it wholeheartedly. And keep it so, like, it, it publicly there is nothing, it's free from reproach. Remember if we talked about in First Timothy chapter 3, the qualifications for pastors, they're, they're to be above reproach. And what we talked about, that there's nothing that is clear and obvious to lay hold of and say, this disqualifies you. You're, you're above that. There's nothing that is just, like, it's not a call to for the pastor. It's not a call to perfection. But it is a call that there is nothing clear and obvious that is in your life that people would say, that's so, that's so inconsistent. How could you do that? Right? So he says that the teaching of God would be unstained and it would be free. So like what Timothy is to teach ought to be consistent with what God has delivered. And it's a hold fast to that. And again, the question is, whose commandment? Is it Paul's commandment that he is to keep unstained and free from reproach? It's not his commandment. It's actually God's commandment. In God's presence, God's commandment is to be kept unstained and free from reproach until Jesus is returned, until he is revealed. And we go, well, who is this God who gives the commandment? This is what I love about this passage. It is ripe with some really amazing things about who God is. 
If you still hold in your finger in verse 13, he says, I charge you in the presence of God, gives life to all things. I also charge you in the presence of Jesus, right, who has made the good confession, who has, has made, who has publicly confessed, who has publicly witnessed, who has upheld the truth. Now, we've got to be careful when we say that Jesus made the good confession. Oftentimes we think confession is, is like uh, uh, saying something that we have done wrong to other people. Well, Jesus is without sin. What could he possibly confess? But what has he said publicly? What has he professed? What has he said? What did he say in Pontius Pilate's hearing? He says, when he was before Pontius Pilate, and, and, and Pilate is going through, so are you a king? He says, what, what have you heard, Pontius? And Pilate keeps going through and through, and then finally he gets to the point where he, he says, Pilate ends up saying, well, let's try. And he, and he wipes his hand and says, like, I found no fault in him. Jesus is basically like, what they're saying about me, that I am the Messiah, the King of the Jews, what you've heard is true. Making public profession of who he is. Public profession of why he has come. Upholding the truth of who he is publicly before Pontius Pilate and before everyone else when he's on trial. Even though, and and catch this, in light of of verses 2 through 10, and we're talking about life in a fallen world, in a broken world, in a world that is not always what it should be, and in fact, it's it's rarely ever what it should be. We see evidences of brokenness all around us. It says, Jesus, when given the opportunity to save his own skin, instead upholds the word of God. Right, right. So, so when Jesus goes in front of Pontius Pilate, this is the opportune time for Jesus to let the cup pass in front of him. Right, when he had prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, "Your Lord, let this this cup pass from me, but not my will, Your will be done." And then he goes to trial, and they are putting him through the ringer, saying, "Is are these things so?" Imagine if Jesus had said, "No, it's over." He goes home. Disciples are happy. Everybody's like, "Hey, he's not dead." When Jesus had the perfect opportunity to abandon right truth for his own personal gain, he said, what you have heard is true. You have said it, Pilate. Right? So Jesus bearing witness of the truth, even when at the the height of the opportunity to alleviate his own suffering, he, he instead pursues the truth, leading to the cross, leading to our salvation. So then we continue walking this way, but who is God the Father that would give a command that ought to be followed by Paul, by Timothy, and by anybody else who claims the name of Jesus? If we drop down into verse 15, this is not exhaustive of who God is. But it's a good running start. is the blessed and only sovereign. Now, that's, that's kind of weird language. We don't speak of somebody that way. What does that mean? It means he's the creator and the sustainer of all things. He is the one who spoke all things into being. He's the one, again, verse 13, he's the one who gives life to all things. He's the one who holds all things together. He is the God of the universe. He is the only sovereign God. He is not just one of many options. He is 
blessed and he is sovereign. He's the only sovereign. Sovereign is a a real fancy word for saying he is the one who is in control. Not just functionally in a place of control, but he is actually practically in control of all things. Uh, when you and I woke up this morning and we're, we have breath in our lungs, like, why do we have that? Because the sovereign God is holding us together. Like, why did springtime, why is springtime trying to come? I want to say, why did springtime come? Why is it trying to break into Montana in April? Why will it be breaking in next April and the following April? Why does the sun go up in the morning and, and fall in the evening and then come back up the next day? How many of you have like a terrible fright that you would wake up this morning and the sun wouldn't be there? How many of you have the terrible thought that I might draw breath and, and like an, an, an oxygen would all of a sudden be something other than oxygen and I wouldn't be able to breathe? How many of you have any thought that the, the inhales in and the exhales out every day? Maybe when you're sick, you go, oh, this is painful. How many of you are, are consciously right now saying, heart keep beating, beat, beat, beat. Yeah, that's too fast. Slow down, beat. He is this, like, he's, he's not just the creator of all things out there. He's also the one who holds us together intimately. next thing he says is he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. Not only in control of things, but he is he's the supreme ruler of all things. Of all people. Of all places. We live in a time with a time of kings, but can you imagine, I mean, if, if in the United States, if we have 50 states, but you go, who's the governor? Yeah, but who's the governor of governors? Who's the mayor of Libby? But who's the mayor of mayors? Who's, who's, who is the highest authority? Like, if you chase this thing into the hierarchy, who is at the top of it all? It's the Lord. And because he is sovereign, all of those people are, Romans tells us, they are seated in their place because he allows them to be. And you go, no, 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 they're, they're allowed to be because we vote on them. But it's like, but who even like, who, like, we think we are in so much control, and yet God's word reminds us, like, we're really not in that much control. Because there's a sovereign God who's in control of all things, and he is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords, and all things obey him. At the sound of his voice, he created everything out of nothing because he wanted it to be there. In Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, David writes in Psalms, just speaking about God's creative work and the way that it radiates throughout all of creation. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims its handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, or there is no language, nor are there words whose voice isn't like where his voice is not heard. Their voice, the voice of of all of creation, goes out through all of the earth. And their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And then he goes on to describe 
God's word and how it is perfect in every way. The God who gave all things in creation also spoke his word. He reveals himself. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. The one to whom, uh, in, in Revelation we get this picture of him bringing kings and kingdoms into his kingdom. Like, we think we invite him into ours. First Timothy continues and says that he alone has immortality. He's eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. There is no one before him. There is no one behind him. He is eternally sufficient by himself. Like he 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 needs nothing from anyone. He is sufficient in himself. He like it doesn't get tired. It doesn't get thirsty. It doesn't need a nap on Sunday afternoon. He doesn't need a vacation from work. He is eternally immortal, all-powerful, all-sufficient. In Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5 through 13, speaking to his people, Isaiah 45, 5 through 13, he says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or, your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to the father, what are you getting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? You know, a baby pops out, hey mom, what you doing? What was that all about? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me if this is to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I command all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or rewards, says the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord, and there is no other. He said, he even invites a question. Would you ask the potter, if it was the clay, the absurdity of the clay saying, hey, to the potter, like, what are you making? I think you're doing it wrong. He is, he is holy in all of his ways. He is set apart in a way from us that we could never obtain, which is the very next point. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is absolutely, completely holy in every way. In every way that you and I fall short, he, he does not fall short, short in those ways. He is, is completely righteous, completely holy, completely good, completely loving, completely just. Complete in every way. Set apart in a way for the people that he has created. 
which leads to the point that he is worthy of all honor and he is rightfully going to have eternal dominion over all things. He will reign over everything forever. Because it's his only right place, because he is the God of everything. He's in control of everything. Everything holds together because of him and through him. And it raises kind of a a little bit of a diagnostic question in our hearts. How do I view God? What is my view of him? Do I view him as he has revealed himself, or do I view him as I imagine him to be? Because this is the incredible thing about who God is. He is, he dwells in unapproachable, he's eternal in nature, he is completely holy, he's completely set apart, he's completely in control, he is high and above everything and everyone, and yet he chooses, because of his grace and his love towards us he has made, he reveals himself to us so that we might know him. This, stop for a second, because you probably just took that sentence and said, of course he does. Hold up a second. What do, you, what do we mean? Of course he does. What requires him to reveal who he is to us? The ones who depend on him for everything. Like, why, why would he ever have to answer to us for who he is? Why would he ever have to even show us who he is? Like, we could just have the veil over our head and just be like, oh, this is how it all works. I don't even know how it all works, but it just works. And yet he chooses, because of his great mercy and love towards us, to make himself known. I think A.W. Tozer says, like, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. And, and, and I don't know if that's necessarily the most important thing about us. But I do think it's really important. Like, how we view God impacts how we follow him. Right? Like, if I didn't believe God to be eternal... I, I probably shouldn't trust him with my eternal soul. Because he may not be in charge in a thousand years. That thousand years might be really good, but if he's not eternal and he's not in the eternal dominion reigning over everything as king, king, uh, king of kings and lord of lords forever and ever and ever, is he trustworthy forever? If he doesn't actually hold all things together, do I really trust him with all of the broken pieces of my life to put them back together and to make sense of them? If he's not in control, doesn't know what's going on, how could I possibly trust him with all of who I am? Right? How I view God is really important. It doesn't change who he is. Right? How I view God is very important to me, but it doesn't change who he is. That's kind of a humbling thought, isn't it? How I view God changes a whole lot about how I respond to him and how I walk with him, but it doesn't change an inkling of who he is. Because he is eternal, holy, above all things, ruling over all things. I think what is tempting for us is that because we are so limited and he is so not limited, that we can grab hold of one of his characteristics and be like, this is who God is. And we're holding an elephant by the tail and go, this is an elephant. And somebody else is holding the trunk going, no, this is the elephant. And somebody else is holding one of the legs and like, no, this is an elephant. 
but he's way bigger than an elephant. It, it always kind of baffled me. I, I've never found like the, the high desert to be a, a, ne- a, a necessarily a pe- appealing place to be. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Like sagebrush, uh, sagebrush, dirt and sagebrush, tumbleweeds occasionally. But have you ever been in the high desert at sunrise or sunset? Have you ever been in the desert after it rains? And the smell is completely different. Even when it's have you ever smelt the, the sage in the desert? You don't smell that in the forest. Have you ever seen a dusting of snow on the high desert? What I'm saying to you is perspective matters a little bit. We recognize this in a finite way in the things that we look at. And what we thought we knew, when we see it in a different light, is more full than we had understood it to be. And God has revealed himself to us and has revealed himself to us. He continues to invite us to know him more and more. Not that he's changing. He's not changing. But our understanding of who he is grows our interaction with him. Eric, can I pick on you for a second? 30,000 foot view. If you meet Eric, you might go, Eric's not the most compassionate dude in the world. Like, mercy's not necessarily his gift. <laughs> you like it? Okay. But it's going to get better. Okay, okay. You like Witnessing or watching Eric in action when he, he's a nurse at the hospital, watching him come alongside families, you go, you were, like, you were prickly half hour ago. Like, what happened? You're not prickly, Eric. I'll give you a hug. One of our deacons, and watching him walk alongside and, 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 and minister to families, you go, I, I, I didn't get that from 30,000 foot view. If that is true of us in our interactions with other people, how much more so, like, when we see God in action, we go, oh, I hadn't considered that's who you are. And we might even say the words that describe who God is. We might describe the great love of God, and yet when we experience God's love in the most profound way, when we experience life in Christ because God so loved us, all of a sudden the depth of God's love begins, oh, I knew you loved, but I didn't know you loved. I didn't know you loved that much. Someday, when we see His justice in full, we'll go, "Okay, I, I knew you were just. I didn't know that you were perfectly just. I knew that you were gracious, but until we received grace, we didn't, I didn't realize how gracious you were. I knew you were merciful, but until I received mercy, I didn't realize how merciful you are." And so then I go, again, the last thing that I want to circle back to is in verse 13, though. One of the major things that then fuels verses 11 and 12, he says that he is the one who gives life to all things. 
which is really important because when you go back up, and we're going to take verse 2, we're still going backwards. He says, fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Okay, where did the eternal life come from? And we're going forward and backwards. We're doing a 12-point turn here. But he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. And right before they take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. This is an incredible thing here, right? So this God who is holy in every way, in dwelling in unapproachable light. No one has seen him or can see him. He is, he is, he is separate. He is other. He is holy. He is different. He's in control of all things, but then he graciously, by a sheer act of grace, passion, and mercy, and love, he has made a way for eternal life through Jesus. So this eternal God who is, is unseeable, ought to be unknowable, reveals himself by grace, sends his eternal Son, Jesus, who is also eternal, and through whom and for whom and by whom all things are together to take on flesh to die for your sin and for my sin in order to give us life so then Paul encourages to take hold of that which you were called to and, and again where did this life come from it didn't come from inside of you but it came from the one who gives life so then the question is, naturally, naturally falling off, that is, what does it mean to take hold of eternal life, if eternal life is given? Like, what, what does it look like functionally to take hold of life? Because Paul is now calling Timothy to, like, actionable steps, right? In light of who God is, this God who is far and away different than other and holy. Like, I, I, have I beaten that one to death yet? He is, he's not like us, he, but he's in control of all things. He holds all things together. By grace, he makes a way of life. And now he says, take hold of this. Walk in this. So that's when we get to verse 11, if we're going backwards. It says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And I'm going in reverse on purpose because it might be easy for us to say, I just need to I just need to figure out how to pursue righteousness. And righteousness becomes my aim. Or I just I just need three easy steps to become more godly. So godliness is my aim. I need four easy steps towards faith, or I need five easy steps towards love. I need, how do I become more steadfast? How do I become more gentle? I, like, how can those things become the thing that I'm taking hold of? But I think it's backwards. Those things, again, where do those things come from? If you turn to Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 26, probably a passage you, you've maybe heard mention of or, or you've heard before. Galatians chapter 5 verse 19 through 26. And this we could we could lay the, the list here in Galatians 5 next to a list in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and we would come across some a lot of parallels. Okay, so the, the beginning list kind of echoes verses 2 
through 10, and the following verse echoes verse 11 in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But he says, The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Though These are the things that come out of us. These are the things that we, like, these are the things we produce. Because they're of the flesh. We are of the flesh. We produce things that are not pleasing to the Lord. Right? He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you, you read all of Paul's writings, you also see language where he says, and, and this is exactly who you are apart from Jesus. Apart from life in Christ, this is, this is who we are. This is what we bring to the table. But Paul is telling Timothy, pursue these other things. But then notice where they come from. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So when we, when we came to faith in Jesus, the flesh was nailed to the cross is what he's saying. And, and now we've been raised to this new life. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So the question, really, really important question, is Paul just giving us a checklist of things that we need to master and move on? I agree with patience. Check it off the list. We're never touching that one again. I have time for it. Faithfulness, got it. I don't think anybody's committed to it. Joy, check. Wasn't as satisfying as I thought it would be. Whatever you think. Is it just a checklist? Qualities that I just need to obtain and then move on. They're like, they're like if, if you're a big video game person, teenagers, it's like unlocking secret achievements. Boom, nailed it. Now we move on to the next one. Or is he pointing at something different? I think what he is pointing at, life in the spirit, means that we are aiming towards Jesus. We're pursuing not qualities. We're pursuing the one who gives those qualities. You're pursuing the one who gives life. And then you ask, well, what does life look like? What does new life look like? Life in the Spirit looks different than the life we brought into this faith in Jesus. So he says, pursue all of these things. Which I would say is, pursue Jesus. Right? Like, where does godliness come from? What is the heart of the Spirit? The heart of the Spirit is to reveal the Son to us, to convict us of what He has taught, to lead us into all of His teaching, to help us walk with Him in a right way. And then we see in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that this faith, that this pursuit, it is personal. It's, it's something that He says, You, O oh man of God, you flee these things and pursue these things. But then he also says, you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So faith is personal, and yet it is also exercised where? Wherever you go, publicly. And, and the faith we say we have personally is evidenced in how we walk publicly. Just as Jesus gave evidence to Pilate, this is who I am. What you have said is true. Now, 
last spot we're going to look at really quick is just this difference between flee and pursue. Again, there's a subtle, there's a subtle shift in here. In fleeing and pursuing, let me just ask a question: What is what is our focus? Is it rear view or is it windshield? Right, because fleeing, you're going away from something. Rear view. Pursuing, you're moving towards something. Windshield. Does fleeing or pursuing get more of your attention? I mean, hey, Paul's calling to do both. But I, I love just one more spot, one, one more letter of Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Some of the language that Paul used to think is helpful in this. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. He's talking about a, like a, obtaining or receiving the fullness of the resurrection and through faith in Christ, right? That there will be a, a, a point where he is fully in the presence of Jesus and salvation is completely realized for all that it is. That his salvation is not complete in Christ, but that there's an element in which he has not yet seen the fullness of it this side of heaven. But talking about that, he says, not that I have already obtained this, the resurrection, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because I pursue, I press on with perseverance, a pushing forward, because, notice the because, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Because I belong to Jesus, because I have life in him, I push forward towards him. He is the object. He is the destination. He is the goal. It says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own already. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, let those of us who are mature think this way. Right, that 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 we are pushing forward with intent. That the language that Paul uses, pressing on, straining forward, pursuing with intention. And again, what are we pursuing? And it goes back to last week in in verses two through ten. Are we pursuing some other objective and using godliness as the vehicle? Or are we pursuing Jesus as the object and walking in the Spirit as we move towards Him? And growing all the while, growing in our knowledge of the immortal, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-omniscient God who made us. Like He's in, And this is the craziest thing. He invites us into it. That's what why we say at LBC we're people of radical invitation because God calls us from one thing and transforms us by his grace, invites us into this journey where we are pursuing after him for a lifetime. Not that we've already received it, not that we've already obtained it, but we are pushing forward to Jesus. He is the goal. He is the object. And it's because he, by some mystery, has decided out of his great love for us to make us his own when he didn't have to. What an incredible picture of grace. And the question is, how do I respond to this depth of grace from the God of the universe? 
Testament with verses 2 through 10 to pursue my aims and ask that he just sprinkle blessing on top of it. Or verses 11 through 16, he becomes my life. He becomes the object of why I do what I do. 